0: number of deer hunters in the continental U.S., so I was excited about being here, and then when I got here, they made the announcement they had 1,200 pounds of deer meat. (laughs) Man, it's good to be in good company with rednecks just like me. (laughs) Guys, that's awesome. That's good. Uh, You know, it's uh, the the open that you just saw there on that screen is the uh, open for our television show, Hank Parker's Flesh and Blood. And so before I get going, I I, I just was watching that, and and I heard the rise out of all you guys when my dad shot that deer, and it did the flip. Did you see that? Raise your hand if you saw that. Did did everybody catch that? All right. Believe it or not, that deer got away. I'm serious. That was in Iowa. I drew a bow tag. I was sitting there. It started pouring down rain. And uh, I looked up, and here came that deer running down this field, that exact same field. And I, he came out about 12 yards, stopped. I drew my bow, and I asked my cameraman, I said, you on him? Are you on him? And uh, he didn't say anything. I looked up, and he was, had, was reading a text or something on his phone, and the deer got away. And I was like, oh, boy, some of the fun of hunting with a camera. But uh, I told my dad, he went back for the shotgun season. I said, you need to go hunt that field. And that same deer came out, and he shot him in the neck up high, a quarter and away. And I, I don't know if it just stunned him or what, that deer— they're high and the deer stands up and runs off it's gone forever <laughs> never ever saw that deer again well uh as he said I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background man it's it's like like I, I mentioned off the bat it's it's so good to be here it's just like being in a big deer camp but uh i grew up in in deer camps and and grew up with a love for the outdoors duck hunting and fishing and and all of that stuff um it's funny uh Everybody seems to know who my dad is. Everybody, you know, my, my dad is, is the famous guy, and, and my dad especially is very uh, self-conscious about his age. And so when when we're in a group or some of these outdoor shows like the Harrisburg Show or whatever, I I, I love it when older men, you know, maybe in their 60s or something, come up to my dad and, uh, what you know, i got to be careful saying older because I'm getting older, you know, I don't want to set that bar too low or too high. But anyway, these guys will come up to my dad, and they'll be like, "I've watched you ever since I was a little kid." But I was like, "What are you talking? about? You're older than I am, little kid." But uh, it's—I uh, up my dad. Everybody knows who my dad is. And the last time that I was at a place with this many guys in, they had made a mistake in their um, in their advertising and had accidentally put Hank Williams Jr. instead of Hank Parker Jr. <laughs> You talk about a lot of people, man. I, you know, that drew a crowd, but uh, it's hey, man, it's all good. I, it's um, I grew up loving to hunt and fish with my dad. You know, if you're going to grow up in a home, if you if you like the outdoors, I, I grew up in the perfect home, and and my life is uh, has been. There's so many things. that's funny. Uh, I, my wife told me yesterday I need to go get my little uh, boy a. a Uh, A baseball bat and a glove and uh, I was like okay I mean how do I know what size how long does it need you know all my buddies are calling me wanting to know how to catch a fish or shoot a deer and I can't even figure out how to pick out a baseball glove you know so uh, I mean I grew up in a good home for instruction and how to do that and how to learn those things but uh, you know I come here because I have a television show called Hank Parker's Flesh and Blood I'm a co-host on that show with my dad and my brother. How many of you guys have seen that show, Hank Parker's Flesh and Blood? It's his first year outdoor channel? How many of you have seen uh, Hank Parker 3D? Any of you guys seen? All right. How many of you thought my dad was coming and you've watched his show forever? Raise your hand. Be honest. Come on, be honest with me. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, but uh, I didn't always do this. Um, I've, I've, we've, we've been doing this show for seven years, the 3D, Hank Parker 3D, which airs on the Pursuit Channel. This year we introduced a new show called hank parker's flesh and blood it's on the outdoor channel and so i've kind of been in this industry about seven years eight years before that i raced in nascar and so it's funny how life works it's uh it's funny how you end up in a place like i mean you know the, the twists and turns that life takes and how, how do you get how do you get there you know and uh it, it's just it's just odd how uh how that's taken place in my life. But, you know, you, you kind of look at it from a distance uh, and, and you think, man, his dad's got a fishing show. He loves to hunt and fish. And you're on a hunting show. That sounds pretty <laughs> pretty easy to put together. But the, the steps in getting here uh, are what I'd like to talk a little bit about tonight, some of, some of my life and some of my story. But, uh, you know, when we hunt, it's hard to explain to people uh, how difficult it is to capture those moments, to capture that funny thing that happens and to, and to be able to really put into play what's really taken place. For example, we had a show, um, we had a show uh, last or two years ago, where we had spent 21 days, 21 days from daylight to dark in Kansas to put together a show. That's 22 minutes of content. The rest is commercial. So you can't, you can't put everything in there. And so, um, you know, guys are always asking me, why don't you show this? Why don't you do that? What, this, 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 and this. Uh, and so I, I thought I would tell you a story that we did not capture on video that I think is one of the funniest hunting stories um, that I've been involved with. And, you know, everything seems to – you get a, a group of guys in a hunting camp, you never know what's going to happen to you. Well, we were in uh, eastern Kentucky, and eastern Kentucky is um, – a different part of the world. Anybody here from Eastern Kentucky be, a, be proud? All right, so nobody's gonna beat me up. Okay. Um, no, I, I, hey, I love the people of Eastern Kentucky, but it, it is a different place. And we, uh, we had this, this piece of property that we were talking to these farmers about uh, uh, leasing uh, to deer hunt on because, they, man, they've got some really big deer in the area. And uh, so we went up to look at the land, scout it out, do some turkey hunt, and hang out with the guys, that sort of thing and uh we get up there we're having a good time and the guy that owns the land just a little bit uh he's just uh he's a really really nice guy but he's just a little bit pushy you know and uh, he's come wanting us to stay of a night with him you know and and i'm sure most of you right now are wondering what i'm saying anyway (laughs) you know i speak a different language i understand (laughs) i'm gonna try to i'll try to speed it up for you guys okay uh but uh, this, this, this man kept saying, come on, boys, I want you to stay night with me. And what that means was he wanted us to spend the night at his house with him. Well, you know, we had a hotel room, and we had three of us, so just, we'd just stay at the hotel. we will just stay. Well, my dad is a good guy. It, and if you've seen my dad on TV, he's, uh, he's just like that in real life. And, you know, after the second day, my dad, my dad says, I, I had to leave. I had to come back home. My dad says, hey, um, since you're leaving, it's just going to be me and Billy. And um, I, I'm afraid we may be offending this man. He wants us to spend the night with him or stay of a night with him. So if he asks today so he doesn't think that we think that we're better than him, we're going to stay. So I was like, y'all have fun. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> so uh, they, sure enough, the guy said, hey, boys, I'd love for y'all to stay of a night with me. <laughs> and so my dad said All, you got it we're gonna stay the night with you tonight and we'll get up and go hunting in the morning it'll be a lot of fun we look forward to it he said, man that's great so my dad and my brother go over there and, and they eat dinner and have a good time and, and it's a it's a super good family uh very small house but very nice you know this man had built this house himself uh not 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 a lot of space and they had two daughters and so what they decided to do was they had two bedrooms. The daughters stayed in the parents' bedrooms, and my dad and my brother stayed in the, the daughter's room. They shared a room. And uh, so my, my brother said, there's no way I'm sleeping in the bed with you, Dad. I'll sleep on the floor. And so he lays down on the floor, and they had a bed with the 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 poles, the brass poles, and the bed was just short enough where my dad's legs stuck out the end about that far. <laughs> and... Uh, One of the the neat things that you if you ever get to share hunt camp with me, you'll realize that both my brother and I have graphic night terrors in the middle of the night where we wake up screaming and hollering. Not sure why, but we just do. And in the middle of the night while my dad was asleep, my brother dreamed that he was on a submarine that was on fire and he needed to get out of this submarine. And so in my brother's sleep, he reached up and grabbed what he thought was the handle and started twisting it as hard as he could. And he's going, oh, get me out, get me out. And my dad's going, oh, stop, stop my leg. And my brother's going, get me out, get me out, stop it. And my dad's screaming to the top of his lungs. And uh, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, you know. And so uh, they're like, oh, boy, this is not good. So he finally gets my brother awake. And they uh, get up the next morning, and it's about five o'clock. They're going to leave out and go hunting. My dad said when they walked out of that bedroom, that family was sitting there lined up against the wall, just staring at them with eyes big as saucers. <laughs> they had no idea. They were like, these people from North Carolina are crazy. But uh, that, you know, how do you capture that? How do you, how do you, uh, you know, that's just a story that's just meant to be told, I guess. And so they, they, in their shame, went hunting that morning and then just came home. They didn't go back and face that guy anymore. Could you imagine the stories that he tells about that? You know, but uh, it's it's fun. I love what I do. Get to travel around, get to go to a lot of great places and hunt. Uh, hunt in, uh, you know, it, the places that you see on TV there, Iowa, Kansas. I've never been to, to Pennsylvania on a hunt. And if anybody's got any great goblin turkeys, I'll accept any invite that you give me. And uh, it's an it, it's, it's a, it's a honor to go get to hunt some of these places with my dad and my brother and have a good time. But growing up, I thought I'd be a professional fisherman. I thought that's what I'd do. I thought I'd follow my dad's footsteps and had a passion for it. I've always really enjoyed hunting. My dad has, has said numerous times that he fished so he could make enough money to hunt. And... Uh, uh, so I, I thought I would follow his footsteps and when I was 16 years old I was on a deer hunt uh, with my dad at, at his farm and he through his uh, fishing career had met Dale Earnhardt and they had fished a few times together and, and uh, you know what's so funny is uh, I was down at an, uh, an outdoor expo and I was telling people t- telling hunting stories and stuff and and they had uh i was the guy in charge of talking to the junior high students telling them about hunting and i started talking about dale earnhardt and they're all looking at me like this you know they have no clue what i'm talking about I was was like man this is bad our public school system's gone downhill if they don't teach wwe and dale earnhardt something's wrong in it (laughs) i mean come on so uh dale earnhardt came on this hunt and he brought his son dale jr and we got to be friends so we started hanging out and uh he, he invited me to come to a race with him, and I went to the race. Man, I was just blown away with it. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm from Denver, North Carolina, which is right down the road from Mooresville, which where all the racing really began. It's the capital of the racing world. And I had been around and seen it on TV. It was kind of a fan, but never really been engaged with it. So we went to this racetrack. This was awesome. This was cool. I helped him a little bit a couple of times, and we were at his shop one day. And believe it or not, Dale Jr. had wrecked something, and uh, I was at his shop <laughs> trying to help him fix it. And uh, I, I'm sitting there messing with this car at, at this race shop, and about that time, I hear the door behind me fly open, and I turn, I turn around, and I look, and there's this guy in the door, and the the light is shining in behind him and, and he's like seven foot tall he's got on black boots and black wranglers and a black leather jacket and black sunglasses And it's like 90 degrees outside and it's like oh you know <laughs> it's Dell Earnhardt he comes walking in and in his classic style just very intimidating and he, and he walks right up to me and he slides those glasses down about halfway he says hey boy I was like yes yes sir and he said uh Dell Jr. tells me you want to race. Is that true? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, Dell Jr. is going to be selling his street stock car, and uh, uh, it would be a good way for you to get started. Would you like to buy his car? I said, yes, sir. There's only one problem. <laughs> he said, what's that? I said, I don't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, said, uh, he said, well, don't you worry. Um, I'm going on a hunt with your dad. in in a couple weeks to texas and i'll talk to him for you i'm like man you got the intimidator on your side you got it made you know so uh my dad goes on this hunt and he comes back and and uh i got my first race car i got my starting race at 16 years old and i know a lot of you guys out there right now are sitting there thinking about a really cool race car with cool stickers and good paint right back up Take that out of your mind. This was a 1974 Malibu that had to be 25 different colors. I mean, it was a hoopie. My grandma wouldn't have drove this car to the store. but that's how I got my start man that was, that was my first car. I started racing on a local short track and just absolutely loved it and, and started having some success right off the bat and, and things, things were just really intriguing to me and I decided uh, this is what I want to do. You know, I'm, I've, I was at that age, sixteen, where you're really trying to develop what you want to do, and you know, it really worked out good for me when I was about that age. Because you know, when you're when you're about, you know, when you're in your early teens, you want to sleep till about noon on Saturday. When my dad would come try to wake me up in the house and say, "Son, it's time to get up, buddy. It's 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 eleven o'clock. We've got stuff to do." I, he's like, "You need to get a job," you know, <laughs> and I was like what he's like you need to get a real job and i am be like like fishing that's a real job <laughs> you know so I, I that's how I looked at racing you know I thought okay here we go and, and but but man I, I just jumped right into it and and poured myself into it I loved it it's it's all I did I started getting jobs at race shops so I could learn more about how to build cars and hang bodies and and do those, those sorts of things that that it would take for me to be successful and uh i just started working my way up through ranks started racing um if you, if you know anything about short track racing i just started moving up and to the point where i got to racing super late models and then after super late models i started racing in the nascar slim Jim all pro series they called it at the time and it was a traveling uh series of nascar basically late model cars and so we uh, just just started traveling and doing all these big races and and, and, and i had a go i i I'd when I started doing this, it was right after I graduated high school, and I sat down with my dad, and we made this plan. I said, okay, when I'm 18, I want to be here. When I'm 19, I want to be here, and so on and so on, and my, my dream was is to make it to the big time, you know, to be able to race in, in the Cup Series and, and go all the way with this dream, and so we kind of set some things in place that would help me to get there, some goals that I needed to reach to be able to. To do what I wanted to do. I mean, it was neat because my dad was able to teach me some things, him growing up without much opportunity and becoming uh, very successful in the fishing world. He was able to kind of help me see how to connect some of these dots. And so, man, here I go, traveling all over and uh, wide open. And man, when I was 21, we were down at Homestead Speedway. And um, uh, the very uh, first year that they were open and, and all the NASCAR was there and uh, all the series and I won the race in the all-pro series and Mary kind of got me on the radar and just a, shortly after that the, the next year um, uh, a nationwide series team came to me and asked me to drive their car they said hey when we go down to the last seat race of the season down the homestead we know you race very well there in in the all pro cars would you drive our car and nationwide series is one step below the cup series if you if you keep up with racing at all uh, the the nationwide series most of the time you got 10 or 11 nascar guys in it they would say cup guys and but then the next step is the cup series itself and so i was excited I'll, i'll never forget it i got out there in that race car and i started making those laps around the homestead speedway in that nationwide car and I thought I was breaking the track record. I thought I was going faster than everybody. And then all of a sudden, Dale Jarrett comes. Pew, he goes blowing by me. About blew the stickers off my car. <laughs> He's going by me so fast. I came on the radio to my crew. I said, did you guys see that? And he said, yeah, Hank, is everything okay? I said, heck, yeah, everything's okay. That's Dale Jarrett. He's the man. They were like, you need to come in. We need to talk to you. You got to calm down, boy. But uh, I got my break, and I'm out there, and, and I'm racing. Things are going good. I made the race, which was very difficult to do back in those days. Ran ran a really good race, had a good time, and they, they offered me a job for the next year to race on a limited schedule. So, start off the next year going to race for these guys, uh, quite a few races. Very, very excited about it. Not a very high-budget team, but a team that could uh, uh, at least get me further down this line, right? Well, we were at Texas Motor Speedway, and... Uh, it was the year when they had a, a lot of problems with the track leaking and people were crashing and stuff like that. And uh, I, I was running and I was very fast in practice. And uh, the, um, I, I was probably 10th or 11th in practice. And so my crew came to me and said, all right, Hank, man, you're very fast. This is awesome. This is good. What can we do to make your car faster? This will explain to you how smart I am, okay? This is going to tell you how smart I am. I said, Okay, my car is a little bit loose, which if you don't know what loose is, it's like taking a guy from North Carolina and putting him on a road with snow on him, okay? That's when the back end wants to come around. Keep in mind, we're going over 200 miles an hour into the corner. I said, I'm just a little bit loose when I come into the corners. I'm about to lose control. I said, well, what can we do to make your car faster? I said, uh, here's the genius part. I said, I think if I hold it wide open, it'll be okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i woke up uh, later that night in intensive care at parkland hospital after a short little helicopter ride from turn four at texas motors Speedway, and it put a halt to my season uh in the nationwide series i had to heal up i had a very uh uh good head injury i guess you could say if they, you could put those two words together and so man it took me a step back well the very next season I uh, started driving my dad's car. We started our own team. We, were, we didn't quite have the budget to be as successful as some of those other teams out there, but, man, we were doing good. Sat on a pole. Things were you know, moving along at a, at a good pace. And, and to make a long story short, through all of that, uh, GNC came to me and offered me a, a job with a big team and, and a good sponsor and everything I needed to win races and so that was my real break and we took off things went awesome uh won a race at uh california speedway out there and mark martin was in the race uh, jimmy johnson and uh, all these guys it was so cool i won my first race and i can remember standing there in victory lane just just being pumped up because i had worked so hard to get to that point all those 24-hour shifts and driving here and there and, and driving junkie race cars. I won this race. It was an awesome, awesome day. And so GNC loved me and, and we were we we really connected and clicked and everything was awesome with those guys. And the very next season, I was um, I drove for Dodge. Uh, Dodge came back into the sport and, and GNC and, and we we had uh, Dodge cars on our GNC and and so. Uh, I won another race. I was the first guy in the Nationwide Series to win a race in a Dodge. And so Ray Evernham came to me, and he said, uh, Hey, man, um, uh, he, we're going to put together a testing program. Would you be willing to do some testing for us? And I tell you, if you can, if you can prove yourself when you test for us, I'll give you an opportunity. And I was like, man, this is awesome. This, that's it. I mean, he was going to let me drive in the Cup Series. So I started testing all the time for those guys. They had a car. They they had a car that you could take every bar out of it in. This car cost two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. They told me. I don't know, but that's what they told me. Okay. I destroyed that car. <laughs> I wrecked that car so bad you couldn't even. They threw it in a trash dump, sir. But uh, uh, through all of that, Reverend Ham, I felt like I'd proved myself enough, and. uh he let me race in a cup race at Rockingham Speedway. It was the year Tony Stewart won the championship. And, went, you know, I qualified right beside him. I was so afraid I was going to wreck him on the first lap. And he going to get out and beat me up in front of everybody. <laughs> but I was there. I got it, man. And, and, and I got to race this race. And they're talking about maybe some next year. And everything was going perfect in my career. Everything was awesome. I had guys uh, like Donnie Allison was coming to me and saying, listen, kid. Just be smart. Don't do anything stupid. You got this. You're gonna make it. Just keep your nose to the ground. Keep working. You're gonna make it. And and I was just trying uh, my best because that's what I wanted so bad, you know. And and so I, I just was blown away with how how good things were going because in my timeline that we had really sat down and thought out, I was ahead of schedule we were on track we were getting there and um, everything was perfect with a future that that just seemed to have no end to it perfect but in my personal life I was the most miserable human being you could make and you think how in the world could that possibly be you know how, how, do, how do how could that be you know you're, things are going good money's good you're, you're successful but I, I was miserable and and you know I I've said earlier my dad was uh he's exactly in person just like he is uh, uh on tv and when i was a little kid when i was just a, a real young guy my dad uh my grandfather was kind of he was a town outcast he was a a guy who was a a, a raging alcoholic he had a reputation people knew him they knew 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 about who he was and uh my grandfather uh gave his life to jesus and and it was one of those things where his life was just changed uh drastically and so people knew him as this really crazy guy and then all of a sudden he's a different person well he began to tell my dad about all of this and what it meant who jesus was and that sort of thing and my dad didn't really want to hear it he didn't care and he was busy in his career trying to make it fishing and so my grandfather lived on another three or four or five years and he passed away in a car accident and at my grandfather's funeral man uh god saved my dad and, and my dad realized his need for jesus and and so i grew up in this home with this with a dad who who was just learning about what it meant to, to follow jesus he always had us in church there was five of us uh four boys and a girl we had a crazy home but uh we we, we were in church all the time and, and that sort of thing and, and, and my dad was not the kind of guy who acts one way on TV or in public and is a totally different home. He just, he was, he lived out his faith in, in, in the reality. And so when I was 11 years old, I, I recognized that the only way to God, that the only way to find forgiveness was through Jesus. And so at 11 years old, I gave my life to Jesus. And I was a good kid. And uh, um, i went through uh, high school just very focused on racing Uh, i didn't really get in any trouble but once i got out of school once we started traveling once i started doing it full-time man somewhere in my mind i don't think i really really said this out loud or you know just subconsciously thinking man i can't live my life like my dad and have fun i can't really be this guy uh that 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 talks about weird things, or you know, a lot of times at these race shops, these guys made fun of me because I was different. They, I talked different than they did. I wanted to do different things, and so I I was like, "I'm weird. I'm different from these guys. If I, I I can't be about Jesus and and be a wild, young, crazy, 200 mile an hour driving race car driver and worry about that stuff." And so I, I somehow in my mind just decided, I don't want to be this really, really bad guy. I I don't want to be that guy that everybody talks about. But I, I don't want to be that really good guy either. That's just kind of weird and it makes people feel awkward and all of that stuff. So I, I'm just going to live my life in the middle. I'm just going to do what everybody else does. And so I, that's just how I live my life. Uh, when, when I was in the All Pro Series, when we would travel around and whatever my buddies were doing, that's what i do. And in the Nationwide Series, whatever my friends were doing, that's, that's what I would do. Had no bearing in my life about anything Other than winning races, that's all I cared about, you know. I just wanted to win races. And so if you keep up with racing at all, uh, there was a period of years there where things did not go very good in racing, where a lot of people lost their lives. And I was out on the racetrack at New Hampshire Speedway in practice, and, and just in front of me, Adam Petty, 19 years old, hits the wall head on. His throttle stuck, and he hits the wall head on. And he loses his life. Just 20 minutes earlier, we're sitting there laughing and joking on pit road and in the pit area, and uh, and and you would think that would wake me up, but it didn't. I just kept right on going. Some other of my friends lost their lives: um, Blaze Alexander and Tony Roper, and you know it was just it was just a crazy time in racing. It, it, the reality of how dangerous it was really was kind of set in because it was always around us well there's a guy you'll never hear his name he was a very famous guy but he was a good friend of mine he was one of my running buddies and a guy I like to have a good time with we worked together for a short period and we were at this richmond speedway and uh, at richmond speedway he was a crew chief and his car did not make the race and that's the worst thing that can happen in racing You, you go out to qualify you don't go fast enough so they tell you to pack your cart and go home. You don't make any money. It's it's a tough deal. It's, it's, it's humiliating. And so he said, hey, man, we didn't make the race. Uh, I'm leaving. I'll check you later. And I was like, all right, man, cool. I'll, I'll give you a call. Well, on the airplane on the way home, he got drunk and uh, got in his vehicle at the airport, 24 years old, and rolled it over, and he's dead. So a couple days later, I'm at his funeral, and, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm just i'm just I'm, I'm looking at my friend twenty four years old, and it just sinks into me, and I'm just start thinking, man, there's more to life than this. I know better than this. there's got to be more to life than just winning races. What in the world? But I left there and just kept right on several weeks later, we were at Charlotte Motor Speedway, and I was testing, and yeah, it was during the week, and we were just there practicing, you know and doing a test for a few days before the race came up in october and and a friend of mine uh that i had gotten to know through motor racing outreach it's a traveling chapel series you see the guys pray sometimes before the race and and on tv and that sort of thing this young guy had had come on board as a chaplain and uh, we had become friends i didn't really want to do all the stuff that he wanted to do or you know i didn't really want to care about all that other stuff but we could hang out some and laugh and joke and and just be buddies And, and and so we became friends and he didn't really push the issue too much. And I, I'll never forget, I was at the racetrack, and I was just kind of sitting there looking at some times and just leaning up against some tires. And he came up to me and he said, hey, Hank, how you doing, man? I said, man, I am doing good. He, so I said, uh, my car is very fast. This is my home track. I want nothing more than just to to race really good here. And and my car is very, very fast, so I, I feel very good about it. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped. He said, no, no, no. How are you doing? I said, uh, I'm good. Uh, everything's cool, man. What do, you, why, what do you mean? He said, let me ask you a question. I said, all right. He said, have you ever just really, really stopped to think about what God gave to have a relationship with you? He turned around and walked off. I was like, man, uh, okay, okay. And I I started thinking about that. And I started thinking about the reality of what he just said. And I realized that in my life, you know, in my racing career, I would never, ever go out on the racetrack and and run 20th. Just in the middle of the pack. just, Just to be out of sight, out of mind. I would much rather wreck and finish dead last than I would... Or win the race. I would be more happy with a dead last place finish than I would a 20th place finish. That might be why I'm here and not at Daytona today. But uh, why would I live my life like that? Why, why would I live my life in the middle of the pack? Why, why, why would I do that? And so for the first time, I think I really grasped the reality that God, in His love, loved me. Enough to send his son Jesus to die for me not not just a ticket to get out of hell or not just a a, a fire insurance for later, or not for just you know a, a cultural or a social reason, but the reality that Jesus loved me enough to go to a cross and be brutalized to buy my to buy my forgiveness and it just hit me and you know, it And so I said, man, God, here's here's my whole life. I want to legitimately follow you. Uh, You know, my private life, my my racing career, here it is. You can have all of it. And I'll never forget uh, just the sense of relief, of just knowing that forgiveness, of having my eyes open to something that great was just amazing to me. It blew me away. I didn't have, like, I didn't, you know, see any lights in the sky or anything like that. But just knowing that I had been forgiven was just amazing. And so I, I kept on racing you know, this, you know, with a whole new attitude. Everything was different. And I, I, uh, I went out and won another race. Things were great. And uh, I met my my wife, and things were, uh, you know, I mean, there's nothing like a real beautiful girl to really turn a story up, right? So I met met her, and and that that was great, and we started dating, and things were going so good in my career, continuing to go good. And then we got down to the last race of the season, and GNC, my sponsor, as I mentioned earlier, wanted to take me to a new team. The team I was with, they were good guys, they just didn't quite have the money to really take it to the next level and so what they wanted to do is go with a team that they felt like I could win a championship with and then go to the cup series it was a two-year plan we'd do one year championship bid do the best we can whatever happens then we'll go to the cup series and we're at last race of the season Miami Homestead Speedway is probably my best racetrack outside of Las Vegas and we're there and, and 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 everything's going good and and the race I'm out there racing and it's 10 laps to go and I'm in the lead and I'm going to keep going, and, and it's five laps to go, and I'm, I'm leading the race. And I come by, and I get the white flag, and I'm leading the race, and second place is right on my heels. And he's a little faster than I am. I'm going to have to really try to keep him behind me. And a guy comes out of the pits and turn one and two and hits me, knocks me up the track, and the guy passes me and wins the race, and I finish second. And I thought, my goodness. And I, I, I came down pit road. I was mad. But, you know, hey, finish second. Things are good. And I get out of the car, and the guys from GNC are standing there, and they've got this terrible look on their face. I'm like, everything okay, guys? They're like, hey, we have some really bad news. I was like, man, we finished second. It's all right. It's not that big a deal. We'll get it. You know, we've got a plan. And uh, they said, no, we, we have some really bad news. Uh, we just got word that we're not going to be able to be involved in NASCAR at all next year, period. And I was like, so that means I don't have a job you know and they're like sorry i don't you know we quit this team and and now and we were moving to this other team and and now here i am with no job last race of the season there's no more races everybody's got their plans for next year and i remember going back behind the haulers the big semis and just physically getting sick it's just wow this this is too much and i got in my rental car and it's was driving back to the hotel and Man, I am punching my steering wheel. I'm just like, why, God? What are you doing? What, why? I'm trying to live my life for you. I, I, I surrender to you. I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm still having my struggles, but, God, I, I'm constantly trying to live a life different. What happened to all this pie-in-the-sky stuff that everything's supposed to, what, what's the deal? And so I'm just being frustrated and mad at God. And Really, it started me on this journey to learn something so, so important. It started me on this journey to realize that my value, that who I am as a person, that everything about me, what God sees in me, has absolutely nothing to do with my performance. That whether or not that I could win races, lose races, be on a racetrack, be successful, not be successful, did not matter in the sight of god's love towards me and so after that i i I started making some phone calls i got a few job offers and and some small things just to race part-time dale jr let me drive his car a few times some other guys let me drive their cars but then this door opened for me to do tv and i started doing some uh the races color commentating and stuff like that and and then um uh, my dad got into this company uh, uh, called Comer Deer and we started a, a television show a hunting television show and it's so funny as I, as I talk about my racing career as I, you know, a lot of people ask me man do you miss it would you like to go back those sorts of things And as I talk about that if you would have told me 10 years ago hey man look you're not going to be racing you're not going to be racing but I'm telling you you're going to be happy it's going to be okay I'd have told you you're crazy. There's no way. And so when my career was over, when I, I wasn't a race car driver, I had to ask myself some really hard questions. Like, who am I? What is my purpose? You know, I, I, everybody expected for me to, to be someone who was successful and able to pull this kind of thing off. Look at my dad. Look what he was able to do. And I was expected to live up to what my dad had accomplished. So I begin to ask myself these questions. And you know what, guys? I think we do that as men. I think, for the most part, all of us uh, uh, come to a place where we're asking that. You know, we wake up one day, and, and we're and, and you know, how did I get here? How did I end up in this place? How did I become addicted to pornography? How did how did I how did I get to a place where? Uh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. How did I get to a place where it, it, I can have an affair on my wife and, and keep that secret? How, how did I get to a place um, that I swore I'd never go? You know, for me, so many things. I don't have a story where I was a drug addict or an alcoholic or any of those things. But, man, there was things in my life when I was a kid I said I would never, I would never do that. And those became normal. And the truth is, it's not so much the stuff that I did. It's what was going on inside of here. That was just the fruit. The root of the problem is inside. So that's what we do. We we, we wake up one day, man, man, how did I get here? And and we we consume our lives in one of two places, in our work or our hobbies. And so we're throwing our whole life away, wide open, working 24-7 because we want to be successful. Listen, there's nothing wrong with being successful, but when that becomes who you are, there's something wrong. Or we throw our life away spending seven days a week on a bass boat to catch a green fish or sit 20 days in a deer sand and shoot one deer. Listen, I love to hunt and fish just as much as anybody, but when that becomes who we are, when we do that at the jeopard, jeopardizing our families, man, we, we need to take stock. We need to ask some questions. And so we, so we throw our lives away on this, and we, and we wake up one day, and our family's a mess. Our wife hates us. She's ready to leave. We don't know who our kids are. We've got this junk in our life that if we could flash on a screen, it would horrify everybody around us and embarrass us to death. And most of us, this is what we do. This is what we do. We wake up and say, hey, I'm going to do better. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to become that man. I'm going I'm to throw my computer away. I'm, I'm going I'm to quit drinking. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start going to church. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to do this. I'm going to do And listen, and, and, and those things may be well and good in their right place. That might, each one of those might have a, a good place in its right place. But the truth is we can't fix ourselves. The problem isn't so much in those things as it is in our heart. And so we... What we have to realize is we are the problem. I can't fix myself. And so if by, by doing things, by trying to go to the outside to fix things, we create a bigger mess. The Bible says this. It says the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, is an enemy of God. And so it, it would be the same, the equivalent, of if I went to the doctor and he's like, hey, we've done some X-rays. We got some really bad news. You got emphysema. If you don't get chemotherapy and surgery, you're going to die. And I'm like, no, nah, man, I'm good. Uh, I'm going to take some cough drops. I'll work really hard not to cough. It's going to be all right. That, that's, what, that's what that would be like, trying to fix ourselves from the outside in. We hear a lot today about opinions, people's ideas, on things like that. So let me, I want to read to you something. Truth. Objective truth. This isn't my. I'm not giving you my spiel on what I think about life or what I think should be right, but what God's word says, and God's word speaks to this matter. It speaks the truth, and it says this in Romans three. It says, because by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. By the works that we do, by trying to keep a certain uh, moral good. We will not be justified or made right in the sight of God. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. When we see those things, we just realize that we don't measure up. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, basically the Old Testament. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all, and that means everyone, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all miss God's mark, every one of us. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or a payment in his blood through faith. This was demonstrated, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Listen, this is what this says, guys. This says that God does not wink at our sin. God doesn't just look at us, say, "Oh, he 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 means well," or "Oh, you know, we'll just brush that one to the side." God God stands as the just judge over sin, and there is not a person in this room who is not a sinner. The Bible says if we don't keep all of God's law, if we're going to try to live by the law, that if, if we miss it one mark, we're just as guilty as we miss it all. We like to hunt and fish, right? So anybody that's never told a lie, raise your hand. <laughs> Not in this room. So we miss God's mark. We fall short. We don't even try. We run and rebel against God. That's our nature. And so we don't lie, and that makes us a sinner. The fact is that we are sinners, so we lie as a result of that. But the good news of all of this is it says it would justify, we will be justified through the blood of Jesus by placing our faith in Jesus. So instead of trying to go do these things and get rid of these things and do this and do that, which may be a part of something that you want to grow in later. But the first thing we've got to realize is I can't fix me. I'm not God. And we recognize that God sent his son in the flesh who lived out God's law Perfectly. He never missed a beat. He lived to God's standard with absolute perfection. And then he died a substitutionary death in my place, in your place, in our place. God went to a cross, Jesus, in the person of Jesus Christ, and he paid for our sins. He died. Literally, physically died, was buried, and rose again three days later so that the payment, we could see how serious God is about sin. The cross shows us how much God loves us, but how serious he is about sin. And Jesus, rising from the dead, shows us that God accepted his payment, paid in full. And so simply this, when you and I recognize that kind of love, when we see the goodness of that and we say, I want that, I'm not God. I want to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He takes our sin, puts it on Jesus' account, okay, which was paid for on the cross 2,000 years ago. And then he gives to us Jesus' account. So when God sees me, he sees me as righteous, perfect, perfect. Holy, He sees me as his own son, Jesus, who lived to that perfect standard. So think about this just for a second with me, man. We, we try to find our value in our work and our hobbies, right? When we realize that God says, I love you right where you are. I'm coming right to where you are, and I'm willing to pay for your sins. You, put, you turn in repentance and put your faith in me. I adopt you as my son. You get all of these riches. How much better is that than trying to live up to some kind of standard of, well, you'd had to this, or, man, I thought you were going to be successful. I, uh, that was good, or that was bad. You missed the mark. So we could see it on the good side and even on the bad side. Some of you might be sitting here saying, man, I, you don't know what I've done. You have no idea. Listen, there is no sin that is deeper than what the love of Christ can feel. He paid for your sin, and I, it doesn't matter if you grew up in church. It doesn't matter if you grew up in, in in the rough part of town. Like a crazy person, Jesus paid for your sin, and so many of us, many of us, blindly walk trying to fix ourselves, try to go through the religious rigmarole of. of Going to second base without ever getting to first. Our first understanding is that we can't fix ourselves. We need to put our faith and trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Now, from that, there's things that I do that I feel like help me to grow and be obedient to Christ, but my righteousness is based on Jesus. So, for many of us, this this is what Jesus said. This is Jesus' call to us. All you who are weary and heavy laden, Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in spirit and you will find rest for your souls. Man, listen, listen to me, man. You tired of playing a game? You tired of playing just running in the middle like me? You tired of just, just, just trying to fix yourself? You tired of being addicted to pornography, alcohol, substance, whatever it may be? You are addicted of just trying to. Act like one person out here, but secretly another. Jesus says, come over here. Come here. You tired of playing the religious game? Come over here. You tired of this? You tired of that? Come here. Come here, and I will give you rest. Put your faith and trust in me. Listen, guys, I'm not going to promise you anything. That You come to faith in Jesus, that he'll, I won't promise you he'll fix your marriage. I won't promise you he'll fix your health, your finances. Listen, I can guarantee you that he won't always fix your career. or or i would be in daytona right now he may not fix any of those and he may i don't know every he works differently through everyone but i can tell you what he will give you something far far greater he will give you forgiveness of your sins and he will give you his righteousness and he'll put his holy spirit inside of you make you a new creation men would you pray with me God if I was to ask these men in the quietness of this moment if we were just to sit here right now I don't like to play games and we're men we like to kill things and eat it and God uh, you created manhood and we celebrate it here tonight but if I was to, to ask these men individually how are you? have you ever really thought about what God gave you to have a relationship with you? how would we answer this is my story god i'd love to share it but what's i want to ask these men what's your story have you ever come to that point where you've surrendered your life to jesus and said by faith i confess that i'm a sinner i want to repent and turn from my sin and put my faith and trust in jesus have you ever done that Father, I pray that you would press on our hearts men who are questioning and seeking and coming here tonight. Lord, there is not one person here who came by chance but God, your love and your providence led them here. If you want to speak to anybody about what it means to know Jesus you stay And you speak to someone. We would love to talk to you. We would love to help you through that. There is no magic prayer. There is no song or dance or anything that you can perform. But rather it's just the surrender of your heart and repentance. Willing to turn from trusting yourself as God. And confessing that he is God. And the life, death, and resurrection. The perfect work of Christ. Father, I pray for the men here who who have come, who have lost the joy of their salvation. Father, that you would uh, help us to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. That, Father, our performance does not predicate your what you say is our value. Father, that your love is based on the work of Jesus. Father, may that propel us into obedience out of joy and love for our daddy. God, I pray for these men here who... who who are coming, and, and Father, I pray that they would ask those questions to these younger men. I pray that they would be intentional about starting relationships. I pray that they would help young men like me see the great good news of the gospel by befriending them and asking them questions. Father, I pray that you would help them to grow and disciple these men so that our families are changed. Now, our kids know what it means to have a dad that sacrificially loves their mama. Our kids know what it means that their dad is putting their trust and hope in something far beyond what this world offers With the right around the corner, four, three minutes away from a terrible phone call. My trust is deeper than what's, what I can hold on to. It is in Christ. Father, I pray that our families would see that. I pray, God, that you would move in this place. And I pray, Lord. Again, for those who are just, maybe I didn't say it clear enough. Maybe they're skeptical. I pray that they they would ask questions. I pray that they would go beyond my ability to communicate clearly and would find that rest that you offer so freely through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. I thank you for his name. It's on his name that we stand. In the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Guys, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you.